This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. How can you go straight from high school to working in the marketing department at a growing Bitcoin startup? Praxis. That's how. One of today's sponsors is Praxis, and James Walpole, a Praxis alum, did exactly that. He applied to the program right out of high school, decided to defer college for a year. Uh, he had been accepted at a few schools, jump into Praxis with both feet. He was placed at a Bitcoin company based in Atlanta doing uh, all kinds of interesting work helping small businesses adopt the technology. He loved it. He engaged with his work and the Praxis curriculum and educational experience. He ended up launching a podcast. He started blogging regularly. He started doing digital marketing consulting on the side. In addition to his job, he ended up getting hired on full-time after the program, as so many of our graduates do. Now he's working there while most of his peers have just finished one year of more classrooms under more fluorescent lights and <laughs> cinder blocks, filling out more assignments and struggling to make it to class on time, a repeat of high school. He's been out there in the world. He already has the job that he had hoped college would help him get. Zero debt, no wasted time. He's creating the life he wants. You can too. Check it out, discoverpraxis.com. I'm not going to promise you it's easy. I'm not going to promise you you'll get in. It's a tough program. It's competitive. And once you're in, you got to be all in. It's on you to get out of it what you want. But if you show the effort and commitment, I guarantee you the Praxis advisors and coaches will help you create the life that you want. Discoverpraxis.com. Now back to the show. Hey. Hey, Joseph. Do you go by Joseph or Joe? Uh, I go by Joseph. All right. Joseph Coker, welcome to the podcast. We're just live right now. We're just going to, we're not even going to cut this out. That's we don't even have we to. Yeah, we don't have to. We're raw like that. I, this actually felt like a whiskey episode. So I got myself a glass of whiskey uh, to, to enjoy the, uh, the interview. 1.30 in the afternoon. Isaac, you're my hero. Well, it's just a small – I just needed a little you – know, A little nip. Just a little – exactly. That makes me sound like an alcoholic. <laughs> <laughs> just, just to get through the day, I just uh, – <laughs> Joseph Coker is a comedian. He is a phenomenal jujitsu, if I'm getting the martial art correct, uh, instructor. Specifically, he's great at – he does all kinds. He's hugely in demand for teaching children – jiu-jitsu right. and he is a musician here in charleston uh he's a podcast host as well all around interesting guy so we got a lot to talk about specifically you have an album that's just coming out um but i want to talk about all kinds of stuff so welcome oh, to the I podcast. Know. thank you man i'm glad to be here i had so much fun having you on my podcast so i just feel like it's a sleepover at the other person's house you know that's right exactly um <laughs> so why don't we start with why don't we start with just your backstory? I mean, where are you from? And, um, you know, how did you, you're kind of a, I don't know, I would call you like an artist entrepreneur. You're kind of, uh, yeah. got your hand in a lot of things. You're very, you know, sort of, you're, you're, you have kind of a freestyle, uh, or, or autonomous lifestyle. Um, but how did you get into the things that you're into? Yeah. Um, I was born and raised in Charleston. Uh, I'm one of the few <laughs> who, who were, but I always I thought I thought those were just a myth. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like Venetians; they, they don't exist. No, but I think for me, I always felt like I didn't quite belong because I didn't have any shirts uh, with fish on them, and uh, either like bass fish or the band fish. You know, <laughs> like like a, I'm just not really a fan of either. No, but I I, uh, I always felt like a different type of Charlestonian. And then I think uh, I, I've been doing a lot of soul searching the last couple of weeks and been learning a lot about myself. And I think one of the turning points in my life was I remember in high school learning about the concept of a renaissance man. 
And to me, that was just the coolest thing I could think of. You know, someone who can fight, someone who speaks languages, someone who's read a lot, who can play several instruments. That was just such a, an attractive idea to me because I was never meant to do just one thing. Like I was born into a karate school. That was all that was expected of me growing up. Uh, but then I started playing guitar when I was younger. And so I kind of always had this multifunction thing. And I thought that was cool. And, did, you know, did you ever feel like... At any point in your life, have you had stress over oh, what's what's my one thing? What what am I supposed All to be the, the best at? All the time. All the time. And I really uh I, I it's 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 one I uh, I well, I was hanging out with our, our mutual friend Jeremy McClellan and uh, the great Jeremy McClellan, and I was, I was trying to frame how I feel about that. And um, I think my whole life I've been I, sometimes I feel like I've been waiting in line for things I feel like I deserve. And while I'm waiting, life keeps bringing me empanadas, which I've never even tasted or had. And I'm like, oh, my God, these are great. <laughs> I love this, too. <laughs> that is, that's a great, uh, colorful and unexpected metaphor. <laughs> I, yeah. like, I like that. You know, it's funny. I mean, because I, I have had a very similar experience where I've just I've always I've always had a love-hate relationship with the fact that I'm kind of a jack-of-all-trades type of guy. Yes. I like being a jack-of-all-trades because it's interesting, and I like being able to do a lot of things, but there are times where I feel like a loser for not being a master of any, <laughs> you know? Oh, yeah. No, exactly. Exactly. And I, and it's funny because people around me are like that. Like uh, Jeremy is good at a lot of different things, but comedy is now his epiphany and he's great at that. But then, you know, I have like people like my, my jujitsu coach at American top team, uh, Maliki Friedman, you know, he is all in, in jujitsu. He owns a school, he's coaching UFC fighters. He's got a great program for everybody. And, but that's, that's, he's all in there. And for me, I, um, like, I don't know. I, I always feel like I have like very productive ADD. You know, I do a lot of things and I do them and I do them well. Like I will never be as good at comedy as Jeremy is maybe, but I'll, and I'll never be as good at jujitsu uh, as Maliki is, but I can be good enough in those areas so that I'm happy and fulfilled. And that's, that's kind of good for me, you know? Yeah, that, that's, um, it takes a while to, to arrive at that. And I mean, it's an ongoing process of being, reminding yourself that that's all right, even though most people are, are find one thing, you don't have to. So, okay, so you grew up, you said, in a in a karate school. So, like, yeah. your parents are karate instructors? My whole family, with the exception of my mom, uh, at one point had a belt in karate. Like, my dad was a black belt. My older brother was a black belt. My sister was a black belt. Even, like, my gay brother who hated karate got to, like, a brown belt. <laughs> Just, like, <laughs> everybody was expected to know something about it because it was, like, the family hustle. But it was also just, you know, it was just how we related to each other. And, um, you know, so, so I grew up like that uh, for sure. So uh, at, at like family functions, it was common to hear, you know, sweep the leg. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, all, all the all the cleaning metaphors in our house were just like all martial arts based. You know? So so we grew up in a uh, um, with karate being the thing. What was the now you're really into jujitsu. I don't know enough about martial arts to really know the differences, but was that like a, you know, did the family like look down on you that you have switched now to jujitsu or, or what made you, what made you transition and, and what, what's different between those two for those who don't know, including me? No, that's a, that's a, that's a good uh, question. Uh, karate is more of a stand up martial art. Uh, it's a lot about punching and kicking and footwork. Uh, and jujitsu is a grappling art and it's almost, you know, 95% about, um, using grappling to overcome somebody. So there's very, you don't really teach punches or kicks at all in grappling, which is in karate. That's all you so do. So it's like holds and leverage maneuvers so, closer to wrestling. Yes, a lot like wrestling. The whole goal, if you're a karate fighter, the whole goal is to keep it on the feet and kick and punch people. If you're a jiu-jitsu fighter, the whole goal is to bring people down to the ground. Um, and as far as like one of the 80, I, I, and coming back to like how I got into it, um, I, I did karate my whole, you know, like I did it when I was a child and I got serious with it when I was 15. Uh, by the time I was 18, I was a black belt and I was teaching in my family school and I was competing. Um, but I never really got what I wanted out of competition because like in, in the karate world, if you want to be on the national team, you have to win first place. You can't like get picked for the roster. You have to win. 
and I never could win. I, I just was kind of a head case. So like I got third place at the nationals one year, you know, I got to go to the junior Olympics one year. Um, but I never, I never won anything. And so I was, I was very disappointed about it. So I moved to Europe, which is a whole nother long story. But while there, uh, I was like, you know what, I'm going to get back to the martial arts. So I went to jujitsu class once and this 130 pound nerd just like pinned me to the ground for five minutes. I was like, <laughs> can never happen again. <laughs> when you said you were, uh, a head case, yeah. you mean just like your mental game was too, uh, inconsistent? Oh my God. It was the worst. I was in great shape. I had great technique. I looked great in the gym. But for me at the time, I was very religious and my interpretation of things was very narrow. And so for me, it was like, oh, maybe I don't deserve to win because I like committed a sin this week. Oh, but maybe I do deserve to win uh, because I'm, I'm saving myself for marriage. So, so it's like there's this weird, <laughs> weird like influence of religion into like what I thought I deserved or not. And it was like uh, and I had no I could not figure out how to break out of that. And And did you leaving for Europe, was that kind of trying to break away from your entire old life or what was the genesis of that? I, you know, I think it comes back to that thing of never feeling like I really belonged in Charleston. You know, like I always wanted something a little different. And at the time I was religious and I got a job um, with my ex-wife playing music in a state run church in a suburb of Copenhagen. Like, like once again, like coming back to that thing where I would never in a million years have asked for that for myself. I would, if you, if you said, where do you want to live in Europe? I would have said England or I would have said Spain or maybe France because big countries like that. I didn't even know where Denmark was on a map. But then I just got this job through my brother and I was like, okay, well, I'm going to do this now because, you know, who, who else is inviting, uh, an, uh, you know, a, a co you know, like a kid who's barely been to college, who's married at 23 to live in Europe and work like <laughs> those offers weren't really flying at me. So, wow. That's, um, so is that kind of a, do you typically like just jump on things right away without a lot of thought? Like, all right, what the heck, let's try it. Is, is that kind of your MO? Yeah, I uh, one of my favorite quotes I'm staring at it right now in my office is a Seth Godin quote where he says, um, it costs very little to find out. And um, I really believe in that. And I, I've always my whole life, like when I was 13, um, I started playing guitar and mostly it was self-taught. And I've always had this belief that you have to like put pressure on the gift. So if you think you're good at something – great, practice a little bit and then go put yourself in a situation um, that's going to put a demand on you and you will either rise to the demand or you'll crumble and you can either go practice more or you can give up. Uh, but you have to, you have to be willing to, to jump into things like that. And so I, I've always, I've always been, uh, I, I think karate also gave me a lot of confidence in my ability to learn because I've never thought I was smart. I never had super good grades. I didn't, you know, like I said, I, I went to college Charleston for like six seconds. I took like one class. <laughs> I took one class and I got a C plus. Like I like you know how sad it is you're taking one class. Great. <laughs> it was English, like of all things. I should have been killing it. No, but I've just I've never felt like I was like like school smart. But I felt like it, when I cared, I could boil the stuff down and I could get to the eighty percent level of something very fast. Man, I feel like you're like a parallel dimension version of so I mean, just a lot of the things yes. that you've said that I myself gone through, you know, picking up guitar. And I remember specifically being given opportunities that I wasn't yet good enough for. Yes. That was what made me good. Like someone was like, do you want to play guitar? It was a church thing on the worship team and I wasn't good enough yet, but I was like, yeah. yes. And, and that is a consistent theme of like trying something before you're ready to be good at it is you know, for me anyway, the way to get there. And maybe it's just because I'm impatient on the practice side. But no, that, no, that's that's exactly right. And I think my whole life and even even to the present now, like I started doing stand up comedy two years ago and uh, people were super I, I, and I'm really glad I found it because um, it's a, another part of my creativity now. But like recently, uh, I just found out I'm going to be um, unless they, re, uh, you know, re recant the offer or whatever. I uh, I'm going to be headlining at a comedy club. It's not a big club. It's not um, It's not like I'm not going to New York and taking it by storm. But, like, I have no business doing that. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm pretty good 
for for our scene or whatever it is. But this is an opportunity that, like, the plate, if we were going to do it by meritocracy, should have gone to a couple of the people. But I've gone up to that club, and I did five minutes, and I did well. I've gone up to that club, and I did 15 minutes, and I did well. And then when they asked me to do this other show, I was like, well, here's something you could do. Here's something. Here, here's something. And by the way, I'd like to headline. And they're like, cool. <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I often... It's weird because in some ways I always feel a little bit insecure, but in other ways I I um, when I when other people look at my life they're like, damn, dude, you you seem so confident, you know. Yeah. It, so it's weird for me. No, it's it's the old uh, dance floor, you know. No one's looking at you; they're all thinking about. They all think you're looking at them. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So okay, so you go to you go to Europe. You're doing this uh, worship gig at this church in Denmark. Um, you decide you're going to do jujitsu, so nerds can't pin you anymore. <laughs> uh, wh- what brought you back to the states? And and even though you felt like Charleston wasn't right for you, you obviously ended up back here. How did that come about? Yeah, well, it was kind of funny. It was it was really like a series of calamities. Uh, while I was living overseas, I was married, and um, uh, I uh, I got a call one night in the middle of the night, and my brother, my older brother Bradley, who's like the light of my world, um, died playing basketball at 34 years old at St. Andrew's Gym. Wow. And uh, and there's nothing anyone could do for him. There's medical people in the gym at the time. And then six months after that, um, you know, like or in the process, you know, fam- family members stopped talking to me, all that kind of drama. And then six months after that, I realized that my ex didn't want to be married anymore. And it was like the two certainties of my life were gone. Mm-hmm. Everything was gone. And so I'll never forget like having this moment where I thought, well, my life is over. So I'm going to make some new life goals. And uh, and I sat down in this cafe and I started planning goals like the way me and my brother used to do. And um, and I made a goal to get accepted into Berkeley College of Music. And uh, I, I, I did, which is really crazy. I got accepted there. So this person who always feels like I'm not that smart, I'm not that good. Now I got accepted to the best you know songwriting school in the country, in my opinion. But then I couldn't go because I couldn't get student loans because I hadn't been in the country, you know, for five years. Mm. And so... You know, so I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to go back to Charleston and I'm just going to start my hustle from there. And that's basically the genesis of every good thing I have in my life. You know, uh, getting told no for like the dream school, you know, and now all the cool things I have and can do is basically come from that no in a way. Man, that was some, I mean, just uh, some heavy stuff that you went through personally in a short sequence of time. I mean, what, uh, you know, is there anything that, that you feel like helped you anything in particular that helped you make it through that, that time? I think, um, uh, I have a lot of friends that do cage fighting. And, uh, one of the things they talk about is how, um, you've never felt more lonely than when the door shuts in a cage. Hmm. And, uh, and I think certain people are, uh, naturally good at being alone with themselves and other people are less good at it. And um, I think I didn't really learn to trust myself until I suffered like that. Because my brother occupied a myriad of roles in my life. He was like my coach. He was like my spiritual mentor. He was like my karate teacher. He was my best friend. And then he's gone. He's just gone and never coming back. And then my marriage was gone. And then so it was really just me. It was really just me um, having to learn to be comfortable in uncomfortable situations, you know, um, just even in, in my own emotions and just learning how to just breathe and be okay. And, um, I think that kind of self-reliance was the start, um, of all the good things I have now. Hmm. So when you came back, did you start teaching jujitsu right away? Was that kind of your, okay, I need a, I need some form of income. This is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Well, my plan, my first plan was to like teach one day a week and then just tour and play music. And then, because I was like, you know, I, I've been, so, so music know, was always the passion for yeah, like the yeah. main or, or the, the main, I guess the main passion. I know you, you're kind of this jack of all trades as we've talked about, but the, the jujitsu started as kind of just a way to pay the bills. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's something I'm naturally good at. I have a lot of experience with and, um, you know, like it's, it's really, I don't have a backup plan. <laughs> like, <laughs> like if I don't teach kids martial arts, like I'm going to be like a waiter at Ryan's steakhouse, you know, like that's, 
like i mean <laughs> which which i mean there's sirloin tips are delicious but like there's you know i don't i i guess i i i just can't stand working for other people and uh and not because i'm a dick like i really try my best to be kind and be a good support when i'm in that capacity but i'm just it's like when i do that i feel like i have the lowest smallest attention span in the world mm. And so I was never meant to work for other people. I think is what I've learned. But so yeah. But I, basically everything was coming to coming trying to support the music. But then I realized starting my business that like oh wait I'm not good at this yet. Like I might want to be an entrepreneur, but I'm not a good entrepreneur yet. Like I have no idea what's important to people. Like I have no idea how to make a flyer. I like, I had the one thing is I can teach, and that's good. And jujitsu is good for kids. But that was it. That was all I had. <laughs> that it's amazing how you know when you read and look into all this stuff about starting a business. And there's just so much, the marketing, the sales, the process, the operations, the, all this, and it's all true. You want to do all that stuff well, but so many businesses succeed because they do one thing well. Maybe it's just sales or maybe it's just yes. product and they do that really well. And once that it's like, holy crap, this thing has legs. People want this. I really know how to produce something valuable or man, I can just sell anything. Then you start to fill in all that other stuff and realize you can build something more here. But it, that's pretty common. So, so you are—I know you're like ridiculously in demand. You've you, you've got to turn down students. You're like the go-to for teaching jujitsu to kids. Did that snowball just kind of through word of mouth? Um, yeah, you know, it it it, it uh, it's it's become a thing, but it was not a thing at first. You know, when I first started, I, I mean, I literally started. It, I, it's really funny to me now because my, you know, I specialize in teaching like five-year-old kids martial arts. But my business started by like me cold calling schools in my mom's shed, like the creepiest <laughs> start for kids martial arts. <laughs> hey, uh, I just got back from Europe. I'm in my mom's shed and I need some cash. Can I come to the school? Yeah, uh, exactly. Come to the gymnasium? <laughs> Hi, I'm a stranger. I like to come wrestle kids. Is that cool? <laughs> no? All right. <laughs> no, so, I, I don't even know where, what the question was. I forgot where we went. But oh, yeah. So, so, <laughs> go ahead. So you started – so schools were sort of your first clients. Yeah, schools are my first clients. And then I think over time, I slowly realized through a lot of permutations and evolutions that I wanted to focus on uh, my neighborhood and Park Circle. And once I did that, I think I've started to very, very slowly reap the benefits of building like an echo chamber uh, in my in my neighborhood where it's almost like I it's funny because on the outside, what I do is really positive. It's good for kids. But but when I look at the inside of my mind of like the strategy, I'm I like picture myself as this like Nookie Thompson of kids jujitsu. <laughs> Like I want to be getting a cut of all the kids' jujitsu in my neighborhood. And I want to run. <laughs> it's, it's, it's ridiculous. It's the same feeling I have when I like rap lyrics in my car. Like I'm not going to do any of these things, but I, I feel what they're saying. <laughs> so, no, I, I can relate to that one too. My, my wife doesn't understand my love of hip hop. Um, <laughs> Charge it to the game, man. Charge yeah, it to the game. I know. It's like, come on. This is. It speaks to my experience, you know? She's yes. like, it's all about like running drugs and shooting guns. Like, what does that have to do with your experience? I'm like, man, you don't know the streets of Millwood, <laughs> Michigan, where I grew up, exactly. you know? The hard. <laughs> no, it is. It's hustle music. It's ambition music. It's uh, it's someone trying to get to a higher level. And that's why it resonates with you, probably. Oh, it's that chip on the shoulder, you know? Yes. Like, sometimes you need a chip. Yeah, totally. So the music side of things, and I want to I want to talk about the comedy. So I know you've been you've been interested in music since you said you started learning guitar when you were thirteen. You were accepted in the music school, and then you couldn't go, which sure was like a okay, this is a disappointment. Have you always just sort of done it like jamming with buddies informally, or have you been performing formally for a number of years? How how has your what has your relationship to music been? Has this been like an outlet, a hobby, or has this been like I want to actually get people to pay me to come play? How have you sort of treated that love of music? Because I know a lot of musicians have completely different approaches to that. I think uh, I've played music so long now that it's gone through so many phases. Mm. Like when I was 13, I was reading Guitar World and reading about Jimmy Page, and I wanted to be uh, a studio musician. That's what I thought would be cool. And then when I was 15, I became a Christian, and I wanted to just lead worship and sing songs. Then fast forward to about the age of 25, I just I realized how much songwriting mattered to me and how and I also realized how often I've been running from it in other creative pursuits. So like at one time in my life, I was like a really good balloon artist. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> so Dude, you just added more creepy points. Oh, I know. I know. <laughs> and a magician. So it gets, <laughs> it gets worse. But every time I would try to go away from music in a creative direction, um, it would the pleasure would hollow out for me. Music is one of the only things that when I do it, it's all it even if it's hard, it always feels worth it. And and so I think that's a good indicator of of that's what you should be doing. So music to me is almost like my spirituality now, where it's I, it's deeply internally satisfying. So I, I played music. I played music in Denmark. I had a band over there. We made an album, or we made an EP. Then we made an album, uh, but nothing big ever happened. I have a friend named Espen Chuck, who's a, a songwriter over there. We write together some, um, but I think when I came back to Charleston, started taking music super serious. Was playing all the time, writing all the time. And then I just in, in, incurred, you know, I had all this like heartbreak with other musicians where I just got really disappointed in people. Um, just, you know, people like kind of being, just being shitty to each other. And, and I, um, I, I kind of stopped playing music for a while because I was just so hurt by it. Cause I'm so, it's funny because with comedy, you cannot hurt me. I will like, if someone heckles me, I, I, I get into that. I love it. Like I would love to tear you apart. I would much rather talk about your problems than mine. <laughs> but with music, like the other day I sent my new EP to this friend of mine and she's like, Hey, I like some of the songs and this, I, I like all of them, but some more than others. And that little comment made me be like, Oh no, which song sucks? <laughs> <laughs> so sensitive. So sensitive. It's when it's so close to you it's so personal you know that i i don't i mean i'm not very don't do a whole lot of playing music and stuff it's means a lot to me and like you said it's that it's one of the few things that never i never get tired of but to me music is like really personal it's really close to me it's it's like one of the few things i'm a pretty transparent person that i don't i don't share with the world very much um at least at this point in my life because for the reasons you said, like, I don't think I could take it if someone was like, that sucked, <laughs> you know, yeah. if it was like a song I wrote. So um, I want I want to come back to music a, a bit more in a in a minute here. But sure. I want to ask you about comedy. Yeah. So you're you're teaching jujitsu. You're back here. Your, your business is kind of going. You're doing the music thing. And what makes you say, you know what? I want to try comedy. Um, I. Um was kind of primed for it because one, I was hanging out with my best friend, Mike Snow, who's one of the funniest people I know. And he told me one time we we're hanging out that he thought I was funny enough to write comedy. And Mike was like the funny guy in our social scene. So I was like, man, if Mike thinks I'm funny, I must, maybe there's something there. And then I was just so hurt with like kind of the, the music scene that I think I was ready for a change. And then one Monday night, I just showed up at this open mic and uh, I watched it first. And I saw, um, I'll never forget, uh, one of my buddies, Andy Ryder, he got up and he's got like this big lamb chop beard and his opening joke was, you know, he's got like a lamb chop beard and then like a hipster t-shirt on. He's like, guys, my name's Andy Ryder. And as you can probably tell by looking at me, I come from a broken home and I just laughed <laughs> so hard. <laughs> that was so funny. It was so funny and so great. And then I saw someone get up right after him and they sucked. They sucked so hard. And I just remember thinking like, okay, I'll probably not be the guy that sucks unbelievably hard, but I definitely won't be the guy that's that funny. I, and, and that's okay. And I can do this. Mm. And then I came and the first time I ever did stand up, um, people were nice to me. I mean, I didn't kill it at all. I barely remember what I said, but like people were kind and it made me feel like the first time I did comedy, I remember thinking I could spend 10 years becoming a master at this. Mm. That was my first thought. How do you write? your jokes like what's that process like say you've got a show coming up and you've got to do a 15 minute set what what do you do in terms of do you just have a bunch of material laying around and you kind of compile it or what's that process like for you i i you know i i, can't, I come so much from the church that it's always i'm always my comparisons are always going to be religious in nature i think but like in 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 uh if, if for people that have grown up in the church, there's two words for uh, the word word, I guess, in, in Greek. And one is logos, and then one is rhema. And logos is like the written word, the revealed word or whatever. And rhema is like a word in season. And I think if I had to compare that to my dick jokes, <laughs> I had to say that like I have established jokes. But for me, I feel trapped if that's all I do. Like I have to like have a written plan, but then I I have to have to respond to people in real time. 
And, uh, and that kind of crowd work thing has become kind of my calling card in Charleston, where I, I get asked to host a lot of shows um, just because I, I genuinely like people. I genuinely want my friends to do well. And I'm, I am not afraid to uh, go out on a limb because I think I'll think of the answer. And that's the kind of rhema side of it. So, like, I have the written plan, and then I, I have to have the freedom to improvise on top of that. So you've got sort of a, an outline what you want to kind of go over some bit things you want to work in, but but you're you're trying to engage and, and work the crowd actively. Yes. Yeah. Well, so many comedians don't do that. So many comedians they perform for a crowd, but to me, if you're not being vulnerable and then you're not making a connection to the crowd, um, you're wasting everybody's time. Hmm. Like you can, if if you were just going to do jokes. They could watch that on TV, and they could watch it from someone who's way better than you. But what they can't watch on TV is somebody looking at them and be like, oh, my God, look at your shirt. That's weird. Or like, oh, my God, that, that's really cool. Or, or, or that is irreplaceable. And that, that is why people go to live shows is they want to feel something. And they want to feel like they, they're coming to see you, but they want to know that you see them. So what do you do when you go to it when you're at a show where the, the audience is sort of conditioned to be sitting and safely – watching a performance because I know a lot of people are kind of scared of like insult Mm -hmm. comics or comedians who are going to call them out. So if you've got an audience that's kind of conditioned and they're there, they're comfortable and they don't, they don't want to engage. How do you, what's your sort of first step to say, I got to break the ice and sort of draw this audience in a little bit. That's a, that's a really good question uh, because a rowdy crowd, I'd rather have that over a polite crowd 10 times out of 10. (laughs) Um, I think for me, one of the best ways to start is uh, if you make like a joke about yourself, you know, like this is some, here's something about my appearance, because what you're, you're what you're doing is you're setting a precedent that it's OK to, to laugh at yourself and that like no one's going to get hurt here. You know, you're, you're kind of conditioning them that it's OK. And then that way, like you can look at the crowd and say somebody looks like Anthony Hopkins when he's on vacation in the you know Silence of the Lamb movie or whatever. Like <laughs> you can make some weird comparison and people are OK with it. Once they know that you're not a bad person and that you can laugh at yourself, people will trust you. It, it's an exercise in building trust very, very fast. That's what it is. Huh. That's that's really, really fascinating. I mean, that that is so much insight for all forms of sales. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Huh. Um, I'm going to have to, you know, have you come to a comedian, the, the comedian who teaches sales like, <laughs> workshop or something. Um, I'd probably make one more money in one day from a workshop. Like oh that. yeah. Yeah. You get some, you know, <laughs> get a corporate client to bring you in and teach you how to build trust, you know, in the first 30 seconds of an interaction. I mean, this is, this is all free, by the way, Joseph. This is my yeah. consulting services. So um, back to the music. Yeah. You said you kind of ran from writing music. Um, so you were playing it. What What is your music writing process? Do you just sort of wait like all of a sudden you're inspired and so you go write? Or do you sit down and say, I'm going to write right now and make yourself write? And when you do, do you start by writing lyrics or do you start by writing music? How, how's the process work for you? My, my favorite way to write um, is this. I like to go to Orange Spot Coffee and grab um, some kind of caffeine with a straw in it. Then I like to there's – this, there's this church that was letting me borrow their space for a while. Um, and so I would go there next. No one's there. It's the middle of the day. And I sit down at the piano. And there's this thing that I say to myself um, before I start writing where I say, I'm here to work. Because so, so many creative types uh, want everything to be handed to them. They want to be inspired, but they don't want to get their hands dirty. And me, I, I, I understand that that is worthless. And so that's one of those kind of, it's like my little prayer is that I'm here to work. And for me, um, it's, it's a lot like, uh, like some people's religious experience with prayer, where my, my, my daily life, I'm, I'm hearing little words, and so I'll write something down on my phone um, about this idea or that idea. Like, so I wrote, for example, one of the songs on this EP, um, I wrote this lyric down about, um, Indian burial ground. I thought that was kind of a cool phrase, like, uh, from eighties horror movies, Indian burial, you know, poltergeist kind of thing. And, um, and then, so I sat down one day and I just started writing and then it became our love was built on an Indian burial ground. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's beautiful. You know, and then you start pulling on it and sometimes you pull on it and you realize it was, uh, you got the short stick and there's nothing to it. <laughs> and then sometimes you pull on it and it's like, wow, this is a song that's meaningful to me, but no one else cares. And then sometimes you pull on this and it was connected to everything in the world. 
And and that's what that's what keeps people coming back to writing, I think, is you're looking for the universality, but it's in the particulars, you know. So your your new EP and we're going to have um, I was going to pick one, but you sent me two that I, I like both of them. So at the end of this episode, we're going to play both of them Heck yeah, um, man. songs from it. How did you how many songs are on the EP? There's six on this. Okay. So it's a, it's not a full length album, but I'm totally OK with that. And how do you choose? Because I'm I'm imagining you've written lots and lots of songs. Yeah. And how do you pick which six go on it? And is it like I just want to pick the six best that I think others will like or the six that I like the most? Or is there a theme that unites them? How does that work? I started working on these songs after coming out of like kind of a chaotic uh, relationship that really left a like a mark on me in a bad way. And so I started working it as kind of like a way to heal through that. And um, as I started kind of gathering songs for this EP, I, the, the mental image I have, it's that it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of like a, a frame by frame picture of a car accident. There's the people driving and everything's fine. Then there's the impact. Then there's the aftermath. And then there's the PTSD after the aftermath. And then there's you driving again and everything's okay. You know, uh, and I, I think someone else has used that comparison before. That's, but that's kind of how I wanted, I wanted to show all the process of, of grief through the ending of a relationship. And so there's like the, oh, you just know everything from you. You're realizing something's a problem all the way to the, you know, it ended, but I would still like to find a way to be connected to you kind of music. So here's a, this is like a half funny, but half serious <laughs> about songwriting. Is it possible to still write good songs if you like get into a perfectly stable relationship that has not, like, if yeah. you don't have tr like uh, turmoil in your romantic life, where do you draw songwriting insp inspiration from? Well, yeah, I, I, that's a good question, and I think um, I think the suffering artist is a ugly, ugly cliche. I don't think mm -hmm. you need trouble to make art, and I think people who do that will eventually burn themselves out. Um, I think I, that, that's not art; that's just autobiography. You know, art is when you can when you can find the sorrow that everyone has, because even if you have a great life and you're married and you're happy, um, there's a sorrow in that. Because everything in life is an opportunity cost at the cost of something else. And we all know that and we all feel that. And that's why like like when it like when Adele does that song like uh, When We Were Young or whatever, there's something about what she does that's so you just immediately understand exactly what she's talking about. And even if you're like having that you're a millionaire and everything's great, you just you feel that. And that to me, it's it's an empathy gift, I think, to be a good songwriter is to make something that people, even if they're not sad right now, but they can feel they feel where you're coming from. You just gave like the best one minute breakdown of how to write good music that I've ever heard. <laughs> <laughs> That's good stuff. That's inspiring stuff. Um, I have a lot of opinions about this. <laughs> so, so tell me about making this album because I know you you went up to New York to do this in a studio. Um, what did when did you decide? All right, I, I want to put together an EP, and then. What are your uh, what was the process of recording it? Like, how long did it take? And this is like a multi-part question. And then, kind of, what are your goals for it? What what will make you say I accomplished what I wanted to with this EP? Yeah, well, I I think you would appreciate this because uh, you know, on a side note, the minute Jeremy started telling me about you, your whole philosophy of life made instant sense to me because I feel like I had been doing it and I just didn't have words for it. And I think you have the words for how my life has been in a lot of ways. That's why I think I relate to you so much. But um, so I was working with this really great producer in town and he's a really great guy and I like him, but I just couldn't nail him down. He was just too busy recording like all the cool bands in Charleston. And it really, it kind of hurt my feelings because like I, I love him and I think he likes me. Um, but I'm like the girl that he can't settle down with. <laughs> and like, I'm not gonna like, I like, I, if I'm paying you money, like I, I, I want, I want, I want commitment. <laughs> I want an emotional white picket fence. No. So I, so I picked myself up and, um, one of my closest friends in comedy is a girl named Shauna Jarrett. And basically she and I made this plan where it's like, well, okay, what's the coolest backup plan? And I said, well, I'm the cool, one of the coolest albums I've ever heard is 13 Tales of Love and Revenge by the Pierces. I'm going to find out who produced that. And I'm going to write that guy out of the blue or girl and see what's up. 
So I write this guy named Roger Granowalt, and I was like, look, man, you made this album. I've been a huge fan of it my whole life, and um, I don't even know if you still produce people. You know, I don't know where you're at in life, but if, you, if you're open to it, I would love to work with you. And uh, didn't hear anything, didn't expect anything. And then I got a call out of the blue, and it's like, hey, Joseph, it's Roger Granowalt from 13 Tales. I was like, oh, holy shit. <laughs> and then, so he, uh, he calls me back, and he said, look, you can send me some songs, and I promise I'll listen to it, but I can't promise I'll want to work on it. And I was like, that's more than fair. Um, so I sent him that song that I sent you, Pompeii, and, uh, and that was the one that made him go, okay, we'll work on this. Hmm. And um, so I booked the time. And everything was chaos this summer. I, I had a terrible back injury. Uh, I was like barely could walk through parts of the summer, but I was like, I'm going to do this anyway. And then I go, I fly to New York. I'm in the studio and I feel so outclassed. Like Roger's amazing. And the guy that played drums on my recording, his next gig was to play with Blondie. Like these are real musicians. And I'm like this, feel like this kind of like weekend warrior, you know, um, and it was hard. It was really, really hard at first. Not because of them, but just I'm just my my skill is out of shape. My guitar playing is rusty. My rhythm is rusty. But I knew I was supposed to be there, and so I soldiered through. And um, and then by about like day three or four, I just had this moment of pure bliss, where it's like, this is all going to be worth it. It's not worth it yet, and I'm going to be broke for a while. But right now, this I just saw the finish line. You know. Mm. And so uh, we we recorded the songs six days, banged it out, and um, and it felt really great to finish. And then um, as far as like my goals, I kind of feel like this is my um, this is my preamble back into music. This is like a statement of my potential to music. Like I don't expect any of these songs to be instant classics, but this is kind of like a message to myself and to the world that like I um this is this is a part of me and I'm owning it again. I'm not I'm not going to let go of it again like I did for 2 years. Mm, that's powerful, man. Thanks, man. Are you doing um shows around yeah. town or around beyond town? Yeah, yeah. Well, that's the other thing too is as we wrap up the mixing and mastering processes, I'm starting to like book show. I mean, I'll do like tiny little like kind of like one room bar show kind of deals uh here and there. Uh, but that's the funny thing is trying to balance like comedy gigs, uh, which are just so easy. Like I, like locally, there's just always something going on that you can hop in and then trying to get back to the music thing. Um, is music I, more competitive? Yes. I, and he, here's, here's my whole thing about like hanging out with comedians compared to musicians. Like I, some of my, you know, I have really good musician friends, but there's something about musicians where I feel like everybody wants to be the unicorn. Everybody wants to be the most special of all the specials. And uh, I feel like with comics, we, we know what failure tastes like every single time. And so comedians, they, they know that they can't be that. They're, they're one step away from eating it all the time. But musicians, if, you, if, I, if I play and, I, and, I, and you don't like it, I can be like, well, you just don't get what I'm doing. <laughs> you know, but if nobody laughs, you're like, no, that joke sucked. That's like, <laughs> it's the, object, the lack of objectivity in music can make you a jerk sometimes. Interesting. That's so an interesting I, insight. Yeah, so I think for me, I'm really – I think I'm going to have to let go of a lot of my sensitivity and my little hurt feelings in order to play music again. It's funny. I'm, I'm friends with, with people and I'm friends with venues now and I have the opportunity to. So it's, it, this is going to be a, a owning, owning it once again, just kind of owning that. No, this matters to me and I can't run from that. You, you got to give the, those of us living in Charleston, you've got to give us somebody now. Darius Rucker has had his time. We, oh, need, we need another Charleston musician. Oh my God, Darius Rucker. I don't know. I think I'm, I always think like how many kids could he kill before anybody said anything to him about it? Like Darius, <laughs> could you like strangle, not strangle quite so many kids? I mean, we love your music. Let's get one thing straight, Darius. We love it, but don't kill as many kids, maybe. <laughs> oh man. Uh, so. We're going to play uh, Red Flags yeah. and Pompeii. Great. Uh, is there anything you'd like to say about these songs? Um, man, I'm just, just as a, as, I would just say I'm, I'm glad to be here. I'm glad that they're getting completed and I'm glad to Rod, for Roger Grenewald for helping me make them. How, how would you, by the, how would you describe sort of your sound? I, I listened to these and I, the first one, Red Flags, I kind of thought this was like, um, 
And I know I don't want to be like, oh, you sound like this no, other no, person. No, I'm not insulted. Kind of like that blues rock, like uh, almost like Black Keys sort yeah. of thing. And then Pompeii was very different. This was a, a much more um, like Hewitt and piano, very heartfelt. I don't know, yeah. like a male Adele or something. <laughs> exactly. No, those are great. Those are great plugs. That's that's kind of what, you know, sometimes you're writing in the direction of something. And I think both those are very accurate. Yeah, that's kind of what I'm going for. <laughs> so you, you got it. So when you when you play around town, are you playing with a band? Uh, I played with a band, but lately I've just played more solo because it's just easier. You know, less there's less rehearsal. You know? So so it's just you and a guitar or a piano. Mostly, yeah. But now that I'm just, now that I've made a recording, I owe it to myself to start playing with a band. So, all right. So uh, before we play these songs, Joseph, how can people find you, follow you, uh, find the EP? Uh, where should they go? Yes, uh, follow me on Facebook. Um, just look up Joseph Coker uh, on my public page. That's where I post about all my comedy, all my podcasts, all my music coming out. You can also follow me on Twitter at Joseph Coker. Um, and the EP is not out yet, but I'll be posting from my Facebook page, um, repeatedly <laughs> when it's out. So we've got a sneak preview. These are, these are not entirely done or are these, are these songs totally mastered and ready to go? No, they're, they're still, uh, they're, they're mixes. So they're not even like optimized yet. And they're, you know, so this, they're still, they're still a little bit raw, but they're, mostly what I, what I meant to say. Oh, this is brilliant because th yeah. these will be like the basement tapes someday. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, be like, man. Oh, I heard the version on the Isaac Morehouse podcast, you know, before they, you know, mastered it. Joseph Coker, uh, this has been absolutely awesome. Thanks for coming on. Go check him out on Facebook and Twitter. He's got a podcast. If you're in the Charleston area, uh, comedy scene, music scene, but definitely check it out. This has been an absolute blast and we're going to hear, uh, red flags followed by Pompeii. Joseph. Thank you, Isaac. Thank you so much, buddy. Thank you. I'm an animal. Shake your cake, a charging bow, a scar down my back for every time. Trust your like I trust mine, thinking that you tell the truth.
built on in the air bury your ground Cursed, cursed From the start Ghosts walking through the walls In your heart Tell me now to hang on What did you Be tourists in each other's life for a day, but you tell me now.